Hello and welcome to Super's On Screen, the superhero movie podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Roth, and their publisher, Deadshirt.net. Today, we're going to be talking about the Warner Brothers and DC Comics adaptation of Watchmen, directed by Zack Snyder. My guests tonight, from Alexandria, Virginia, contributor to both WomenWriteAboutComics.com and Deadshirt.net, Kaylee Hearn. Hello. And from high atop Sharkatraz in Queens, New York, Deadshirt Comics editor, Max Robinson. Hey. Welcome to the show, you guys. Great to be here. Thank you for bringing me on board to make more Alan Moore jokes. That's <laughs> true. Max was last on, on our on our Incredibles episode, which ended up turning into a Watchmen episode at points. Any no, there was no Alan Moore reference left unturned. And uh, Kaylee, this is your first time on the show, so welcome uh, for the second time. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, so Watchmen is one of the more controversial comic book. Uh, film adaptations for a number of reasons, but uh, we'll have plenty of time to get into why. Uh, as always, I like to start with asking each of our guests about their first time seeing this movie and their experience with the source material. So, Kaylee, what was your uh, introduction to Watchmen, both as a book and as a movie? Uh, my first introduction to Watchmen was actually a Wizard Magazine article, if anyone remembers Wizard Magazine, that oh, spoiled yeah. the ending. Bastards. Uh, yeah, but I, it sounded like absolutely mind-blowingly fascinating to me that a comic book would end that way, which I'm assuming, if you're listening to this, you know how it ends, but... Yeah, spoiler, uh, this is a spoiler podcast, guys. If you haven't read or seen Watchmen, preferably both, you probably want to, you know, do that first. And um, I read the graphic novel, and um, it is absolutely one of my favorite books of all time. I'm a total cliche Alan Moore fan. I'm like, Watchmen! Yes! So I'm a huge fan of the book, and the movie's very interesting. It's not quite the book, as we all know, but um, I actually have a very positive general reaction to the film, especially the director's cut version, which I think is more a fuller film. All right, Max, how about you? Uh, I just want to piggyback onto what Kaylee said about uh, Wizard. And did you ever read through the like wizard? Remember, like wizard had like a price guide in the back of each issue. They had, yes. they had, yeah, they had that price guide. And if you looked at the Watchmen entry, at least circa I don't know when I was reading Wizard, which was probably like uh, late nineties, early two thousands, they like literally have like Rorschach dies this issue, like you know, you know, in the last in the last issue uh, in the price guide, and I was just like. Oh man, um, but my okay. So my my introduction to Watchmen was I read it in high school um, when I was like way too young to like really fully get it because it was yeah it was like promoted pretty heavily in like Wizard, um, and then you know I I read it subsequently more and more each time and I you know got to understand it and it is it is absolutely I think you know the the rep it gets is like the one of the most important you know. Uh, I guess you can call it, you know, graphic novels, miniseries, whatever. It's definitely earned. I mean, just on a technical level, it's it's like beautiful. It's precise. Um, but the movie I saw in college with, I believe, my girlfriend at the time, and I, I I remember coming away from it being like really into it, and then over time, my opinion sort of. I, I go back and forth on it. I watched the the I have the super long you know director's cut the full story version, um, and I think it's good. It's just you know it's like brutal to watch. It's just like 
it's 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 impossibly long. It's hard work. It is. My first experience with Watchmen was uh, I read it on a I read it on a plane on a transcontinental flight. I saved it for that for a long time. I had the book in my room, and I'm like, I know I'm gonna have to be on a 12-hour flight to Prague or something for school. My school orchestra went on a trip to a really cool place, and despite the place being cool, the trip sucked. But what was cool about it was on the on the ride there, I read Watchmen, and it blew my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I read it. I read it again a bunch of times, as, as anyone I think does when they read it. And then there was a college class that actually, I, a comics class in at, at my university that uh, was concurrent with when the movie came out. So I'm sure that they read Watchmen in the graphic novel class every year. But it was uh, particularly cool because we we really we really dug into it, and then we all went to go see the movie and had feelings about it. Uh, Everyone had feelings. You had feelings. You had feelings about a movie, Dylan. <laughs> I don't know. I don't usually have feelings about a movie, which is why I have no interest in doing a weekly podcast about them. <laughs> Heavens no. But this is the movie that everybody said would never happen and couldn't be made. And I guess a key question is: Were they right? Does this movie do Watchmen justice? And if so, to what degree? And you know, is there something that could have been done to make this movie less? Ugh. I like to use words rather than noises, but that's mostly what comes out of my body when I think about this movie. I like that this movie proved uh, people who said that a Watchmen movie couldn't be made so wrong that even Alan Moore, even Alan Moore not wanting the film to be made, did nothing to stop it from being made. The well, Dave Watch- Gibbons was actually very involved in the making of the film and gave it his stamp of approval which i think is significant yeah gibbons has always been pretty seems like he's always been pretty on board with that and uh i I think it definitely shows in the movie oh yeah absolutely the screenplay by the way written by solid snake himself david Hayter, who also wrote x-men right the first x-men movie yes sir so with the with the sort of shrugging almost approval of writer Alan Moore and with the full cooperation of artist Dave Gibbons, this movie was, I think, maybe the most faithful adaptation of a piece of sequential art maybe to date still the most the most faithful ever attempted for a major motion picture. I, I definitely agree with that and I think that is I think that is that is responsible for some of the best parts of this movie and also absolutely some of the worst parts of this movie. Yeah, I think Sin City probably is the most literal from page to screen adaptation, but agree that um, Zack Snyder tried to be extremely faithful to the graphic novel. Um, in some parts, you know, amazingly so, like some of the parts people said, oh, this will absolutely not be in a Watchmen movie. He put in to his credit, I think. And then again, as Max said, there are other parts where you're just like, okay, this did not need to be in a Watchmen movie. They cut so little, so it's kind of interesting to think of the things that they did actually decide didn't belong. Even though um, the movie's almost panel for panel for a while faithful to the book, it does actually tack on a brief sort of prologue to, to get us acclimated to the universe and to introduce us to... We get the comedian's death first instead of in flashback, but pretty quickly it becomes Rorschach's movie just as the first issue belongs to Rorschach. So I'd like to begin with Rorschach as portrayed by Jackie uh, Earl Haley. Oh, he's absolutely amazing. I think Jack Earl Haley as Rorschach single-handedly justifies the existence of a Watchmen live-action movie. He, he's so unquestionably the best part of that movie. Like, he's perfect. Like, 
from like there's like no point in that movie where he's just not a hundred percent that character it's like and you can t- i mean i knew he was a huge fan uh Haley's a huge fan of Watchmen, and like he really, really lobbied for that part, um, and it, it really shows. I think really the key is that like the the most difficult, maybe most challenging moments for Rorschach would be those really darkly funny moments, uh, like when he has left that note saying "Look behind you" inside of Moloch's fridge, and then he stuffs him into the fridge, or I think maybe even more significantly the whole spiel in the jail cells when he makes jokes out of, you know, electrocuting people, chopping off limbs, drowning people in toilets and whatnot. He pulls off the comedy of this really gruesome, horrible character really well. Okay, can we talk about how, like, how great the opening credits of this movie are? It's amazing. It's one of, if not the, the best sequence in the movie. Uh, yeah, I think it's easily the best sequence in the movie, and just I, I was rewatching it like just now in preparation for this podcast, and it's it it's just like such a great short like not only is it a great little micro film in and of itself, but I think Snyder does a really good job with this in terms of giving us all this backstory that that in the comics more gives us through this sort of like supplemental material like Hollis Mason's. Um, you know, a book, you know, newspaper clips, and that kind of thing. The opening credits have to accomplish a lot, and I think uh, and there's a tremendous amount of exposition, but also a lot of style to it, and really gets you acquainted with the world in more than just a historical sense. You kind of it, it establishes tone. There's sort of light moments, but it's mostly it's it's mostly a series of weird, bleak images per, with kind of revealed with a certain flair and a laugh like here or two, which I think is sort of a microcosm of the movie. I think they do. Uh, I think what's really cool about this is how it, it not only shows us like, you know, it, it, it's sort of like a, an American history sort of here, are the, here are the moments in American history, but also like or the history of these characters, but like very specifically where this, uh, this world stopped being our world. Exactly. Like, um, there's the great scene with Silhouette kissing the nurse on uh, the end of or World Silk, War Two. Silk Spectre on the side of the Enola Gay. It's like, oh man. There is one moment like that in the credits that kind of bugs me, though, because one of my problems with the movie is the way that it takes a lot of things that are sort of subtly hinted at or implied in the comics and make them very, very explicit. For instance, the the comic doesn't flat out show you, hey, the comedian shoots JFK. They sort of give you the opportunity to kind of be like, hey, I think the comedian shot JFK. Um, that there wasn't possible, apparently, in the, the yeah, I, movie, so they yeah. just give it to you. Yeah, well, it's I still was, better like, than what they did about. in Before Watchmen. Well, that's not saying much. <laughs> As opposed to the but, Before yeah, Watchmen no, version of There's how some, the JFK well, like thing funny. went down. I will take oh, the super I'll, obvious, yes, the comedian shot him in the head version over that any day. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's yeah, it's funny because like I mean that opening credits is such a microcosm of the movie because it's like oh wow this is it's like one thing that's really cool and then another thing that's like oh <laughs> like I don't know like we had this cut from you know uh, the original Silk Spectre arguing with her you know sham husband or whatever and then it cuts to like a monk burning himself in Vietnam and I'm like this is 
cool, but uh, it's also just, uh, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's weird. It's like, uh, it, it, I, I can't, It's a bit I can't, tacky when you yeah. merge fantastical comic book elements with real life um, tragedies like assassinations, yeah. which I think, uh, not to get too off topic, but I think X-Men Days of Future Past is also kind of dancing on the line with this problem. But. Uh, an- another movie where the bad guy apparently kills JFK, if, if the viral marketing for that movie is to be believed. And apparently it has Richard Nixon, too, so this is all very timely with superhero movies and actors playing Richard Nixon. I wonder if they got the same guy. (laughs) Who knew this would be a thing? It is. The Nixon in this, his, I remember, like... He's a Muppet. It's one of the first things you see (laughs) in the movie. He does look very much like a Muppet, and, like, his makeup is weird. Uh, The age makeup in this movie, I think, is one of the weirdest blind spots because most of it is not good richard nixon looks like king theoden in lord of the rings when he's like (laughs) possessed by brad dorf (laughs) (laughs) he's got the big silly putty nose yeah did not work out if only they could have afforded anthony hopkins but there are, you know, there's a number of, of weird celebrity lookalikes in the beginning of the movie. I mean, there's a Pat Buchanan lookalike in the first yes. 60 seconds of this movie. That's a oh, deep gosh. cut. Yeah, they do some, and it's cool because they also sort of like kick off some, some. Uh, they, they give you a really good idea of the characters, uh, a lot of the characters at least sort of going forward. Like, I do really like how every time we see the comedian, he's just got this like shit-eating grin on his face. Um or, you know, uh, Ozymandias hanging out outside of Studio 54, which, I mean, I guess we'll talk about that later, but... He's got, like, uh, village people behind him. Yeah, there's, they're, they're not, it's not, this movie's not subtle about painting this version of Ozymandias as, you know, this sort of, like, queer counterculture symbol, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, Ozymandias is very 70s David Bowie in this movie, which we'll probably talk about more when we actually get to him, but... yeah. It's I I liked it I you know I got a kick out of the Studio Fifty Four scene. I, I think the last thing I guess I'd say about this is I I do like that Snyder is very deliberately going for a um you know uh, Saturday Evening Post sort of portraiture style in a lot of these shots like the everyone's eyes looking at Silk Spectre's cleavage in the in that one shot or where they're all sitting at the table and it's like very very specifically that one one Saturday Evening Post cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why it's uh, so great with the Bob Dylan, the times they are changing. Yeah. Like, I actually really like the music choices in this movie. I know some people think they're too obvious, but I think they work in the context of what Snyder's trying to do. There are definitely I'm really into all but one of them. Which is the one you don't like, Max? Uh, uh, well, in, it's, it's, a, it's the song by Leonard Cohen. Oh, Dylan. yeah. Oh. <laughs> we will oh. get there. We will most certainly get there. But I definitely agree. Um, there's not to jump too far ahead, but I there's this moment where comedian jumps off the owl ship and it's playing "I'm Your Boogeyman," and like, oh, yes. and he just lands. And it's like every time I watch that scene, I just get these chills because it's just like that. That is like to me like really like Snyder using music at its best. So right after we get the opening credits, we end up jumping basically the page one panel one of the book uh, with the movie sort of showing off its ability to use like infinite depth of field the motion control and just a shit ton of computer graphics to replicate 
specific images from the comic as faithfully as possible. Uh, I think um, there are a lot of weird ways where he plays with time, uh, where it's like a like a long take will stay in one place for a long time and then whoosh somewhere uh, that I, maybe to like the next panel, sort of like sort of like he's trying to create still images and then speed through what would be the closure between panels in the comic. Yeah, when he shows when when he's replicating the um, smiley face pin in the gutter, uh, he definitely the way it like slowly pans back is definitely Snyder trying to replicate the multiple panels uh, that Gibbons did in the comic, which which is cool. I don't you know I just like I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> like I, I admire the technical proficiency of it, but I also I'm also just it, it also gives this movie this like very surreal feeling that I don't know that I like. One of the big arguments to be made about this movie is the idea that if you're going to basically instead of adapting a source material, you're translating source material. Um, mm. that, that this movie isn't really an adaptation. It's they just put as much of the comic series as they could on the screen, but. The things that make a good scene in a comic book, or the things that make a good shot in a movie, or a good panel in a comic, or you know, you know, the things that work in one medium don't necessarily work as well in the other, and very little attempt is made to really do the adaptation. Well, I mean, it's sort of like how you know, The Dark Knight is like a really great Batman story, you know, on its own, and that's because it wasn't Christopher Nolan painstakingly, lovingly uh, trying to recapture every page from, you know, the long Halloween. Yeah, I think one of the problems that the movie faces is that the original book is so absolutely carefully and intricately constructed. Nothing is extraneous. So when you're adapting it to a movie and you have to take a character out or rearrange certain events, it's kind of like a game of Jenga where you're pulling the bricks out and it's going to fall apart because uh, everything is connected. For example, um, the Hooded Justice cameo. Um, in the movie, it's just, okay, here's this guy with a German accent who shows up for a minute, disappears, and is never referenced again. It's like, well, why is this character here? <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, oh, well, he was in the comic, so of course he's here. It's, you know, like the line of Josie and the Pussycats movie, like, why are you here? Well, I was in the comic, so that's why I'm here. <laughs> but it just it doesn't work in this movie. So, you know, some things definitely could have been um, changed and would have made the film stronger. I don't think you necessarily have to obsess with, oh, well, the fans are going to love that I have the Hood of Justice cameo. And you, you don't need to do that, Zack Snyder. Well, and there's also sort of a problem that other people have pointed out, which is Watchmen is very specifically about superhero comic books. And, like, you know, sort of um, dissecting, dissecting specifically, you know, comic books in a comic book medium. This is a movie. So some of this, it just doesn't, some of it doesn't totally translate. There's no attempt really to comment on the superhero film with this superhero film. I, I will I say, I is. would agree, I would agree with an exception, with the exception of this, not to talk over you, Kaylee, uh, but... I would I would say there is um, in the look of the costumes, specifically Night Owl and um, Ozymandias. I have heard that Ozymandias' costume is meant to parody the Schumacher Batman. I mean, he's got nipples. Yeah, but I'm sorry, Kaylee, you had something to say. 
Um, I do think there is some uh, type of commentary on superhero films at that time, but that aspect of the film kind of does, hasn't aged well because, you know, Watchmen came out before the Avengers, before, you know, um, before Iron Man? This was the Probably year before Iron Man, but they Iron wouldn't Man. have seen it during the production of the movie. Yeah, so, I mean, like, what we think of superhero movies today has changed a lot, even in just the few years since Watchmen came out. Um, for And, for example, there's a line they change where, um, in the comic, Ozymandias says, I'm not a Republic serial villain, which Republic serials were, you know, the old-timey um, cape out, um, you know, Batman adventures from the 1940s. Where and in the movie, instead he refers back to the comic, saying, "I'm not a comic book villain." So I do think there are some moments that are meant to, uh, you know, comment on superhero films, the costumes. Like uh, um, Night Owl looks very Batmanish, which is also funny because now Zack Snyder is directing a Batman film. Hmm. So it sort of is like a commentary on superhero. <laughs> really, films, I hadn't heard about but that. But it's very time placed. Like if this movie was being made today. I think would it would come across very differently, if that makes that's, sense. That's that's what I, I I've sort of been thinking about recently. Like, is with with the you know the way these the Marvel movies have really blown up, and you know just the way that superhero movies are like so like in the I don't know like zeitgeist or whatever right now. Like, it, it would have been so it would have been so cool if we had gotten a, a Watchmen movie that like was very deliberately about satirizing or, you know, uh, dissecting those movies. I think, honestly, though, if that if they were to make Watchmen today, we'd get pretty much the exact same movie because Warner Brothers would still have Zack Snyder make it. I think we would get it in two or three parts, though. Well, yeah, that's probably oh. true. <laughs> These days, they would probably invest in making it two, maybe three movies, so... They kind of already did that with, like, the three different DVD releases. Uh, that's a good point. The final cut, the, the the ultimate cut, which is what I watched to prepare for the podcast, is three and a half hours long, and it incorporates the Black Freighter animated stuff and a whole bunch of extra scenes with Hollis Mason that are pretty nice. Damn, can it's we, a long movie. Can we talk about how the Black Freighter stuff is, like, totally useless in the context of uh, this movie? It doesn't belong here oh, at all. It doesn't so, make any, it so doesn't make any sense. Edited. First it's of all, like, when you first see the Black Freighter footage... There is no context clue given to you. You've just seen something happen in a live-action movie. You're watching a live-action movie, and then suddenly, a cartoon guy lands in a cartoon ocean. What the fuck just happened? And it's not until the end of that scene where it cuts back and you find somebody's been reading a comic book. But if you haven't read the graphic novel, and maybe they're assuming that if you spent $40 on the ultimate cut that you have read the book at least once, you're like, what the shit is going on? Why are there now cartoon pirates? Why not? But well, the, great thing said. That, the great thing that, that Tales of well, the Black Freighter does is the way the it, narration in the in the comic story will bleed over over the events of the book, and they don't do that at all in the movie. Uh, yeah, the editing, like you said, is like is terrible because it's supposed to directly parallel um, um, events in the main story. Yeah, I, I was going to say. So, like, um, for example, when Rorschach is arrested, you have the scene with Raw Shark. You know, the shark killing scene. And they're supposed to play off of each other, but in the film, like they're com- at completely different points in the running time, and it just doesn't make any sense at all. And it's like, well, why even edit this in if you completely don't understand the point of the Black Freighter story as it relates to the events of Watchmen? Well, and not to mention in in the comic itself, 
you know, there's a, like a connection because the the guy who created this comic was like one of the people kidnapped and brought to you know Squid Monster Island or whatever to to actually make the giant plot device at the end. So it all like ties in with that. But that guy, like, that guy, that's not in the movie at all. One of those weaknesses in the translation between the graphic novel form and the movie's form is that a lot of things that are meant to be, I guess I kind of spoke about this earlier, but the things that are meant to be subtle have to be thrown at you because the brilliant thing that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons were trying to demonstrate with Watchmen is the idea that in the comics form, you can put everything in there and the reader can read it at their own pace and then go back and then be like, oh, I see in the background they're talking about this or this band. The idea that you have these bands that are playing and that their names are symbolic of the apocalyptic atmosphere and these little news clippings that are never quite plot important but really build the world for you. Uh, I guess the idea of making the movie now would be that people can still freeze frame. They can do that. People are mostly watching movie on home video and they can do that. But somehow, to me, moments like when Dan walks out of Hollis Mason's house and past the sign that says, you know, obsolete models be repaired or whatever, putting that on a movie screen as he walks by it strikes me as really like, do you get it? He feels obsolete. Whereas in the comics form, because you're used to seeing all of this background text and stuff that doesn't necessarily have an overt meaning that the first time you read it it's just background and then only later you look at it and you say oh hey that means something i think you can do that in film uh like i think edgar wright uh just off the time i had like edgar wright did a really great job with that in world's end but just the way like that he that there's lots of like ongoing background images and stuff that like we're not maybe supposed to immediately pick up on but maybe subconsciously we are but, uh, yeah, I agree. Um, the, the way the movie, the, the Watchmen movie sort of comes across is it's like a Broadway play version of the comic. <laughs> because it's, just, yeah, it's like every, uh, there's no, there's no subtlety. Now my mouth is watering for a hype for an alternate universe where Edgar Wright made this movie. Cause holy shit, that would have been so fucking good. Not that I'm complaining so much about this movie. I, I enjoyed it more than I expected I was going to on this viewing, but Edgar Wright is Simon now Pegg is, the obvious Simon Pegg is, choice. <laughs> Simon Pegg's Rorschach would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I almost want to say, wasn't there a rumor that he was going to be Rorschach? Yeah, I could, I could totally see that. I have no idea if it's actually true or not, but that just pinked my head. Like, I know I've heard somewhere someone wanted Simon Pegg to be Rorschach, which would have been a thing. Sure. It would have definitely been a thing. <laughs> One thing I really have a hard time complaining about for this movie also is that the majority of the casting was excellent. Oh, yeah. I agree. Casting has, like, never been Zack Snyder's problem. I think the one the one casting decision in this movie that, like, really, really bugs me, which is weird because I, I, I love her normally, is uh, Carla uh, Gugino, Gugino um, as Silk Spectre, as, as the original Silk Spectre, Oh my god! What the hell happened there? She's a really good actress. She sucks in this. (laughs) Yeah, she's like unbearable in this movie. I I don't know. I think it's 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 partly the character. Like Sally Jupiter is a very scenery chewing character. That's true. So I don't know if it's necessarily the actress or just that you know Sally Jupiter is very scenery chewing. She's very dramatic. Yeah, it's not that she's at all a bad actress by any means. It's just like she sort of chose to go 
to do it like you know super vampy which like you know like on paper i'm like yeah okay i can get behind that but like that monologue she has like uh, about like the rain falling on everyone which i don't think was in the comic but i don't know uh, it is. was is it okay yeah. well it's it's bad <laughs> it's just really bad. it's like the i think in my mind that's like the low point of the movie for me, her low point is um, when you get the full flashback to her fight with her husband when uh, when Lori's on Mars, and she's like, "Ah, oh, am I ever gonna live this down?" And it's just, yeah. it's so stagey and it's so over the top, and it's a moment that should be really profound, but I'm just rolling my eyes at it. We got a glimpse of that in the opening credits too. Like that's what like, sort of what I was talking about earlier with the the, the burning monk, and it's mm-hmm. just like. Yeah, uh, it's. I I love you, Carla, but uh, not no, please. The, the other weak link that to me though, and I'm is, and it, it's it sucks because you know you you don't get a lot of women in this movie. Um, Malin Ackerman. Ackerman was not good either. She, yeah, she was miscast. I don't I don't know what the deal with that was. Yeah, she looks the part. You know that's uh, you know she definitely looks like she walked out of a Dave Gibbons drawing, but. Um, no, she's not very good. And again, part of it is, unfortunately, that Laurie's role in the original story is very underwritten compared to the male characters. Yeah. So she has less to work with, but she's also, I guess, like mother, like daughter. Some of her line readings are very stagey, like um, her love scene with John where she, you know, he's the multiple guys fondling her. And she's like, what? No, that's not I what I want. want uh-huh. And I'm just like, oh, girl, please. Oh. I'm sorry. Blue man, a literal blue man group. It's a shame. Like so many of the performances are so spot on that when there's a weak link, it's it's really glaring. Because I can't think been- about. How, I'm sorry. I can't help but think like how much better the movie would have been if if Carla Gugino had played the the Sally Jupiter part. You mean the Lori part? Oh, the excuse me, the Lori the the Lori Jupiter part. Uh, I can definitely see that would have been good. Because it, see, because like I mean, I guess they were sort of in the comic. You know, isn't she? The idea is that she's you know she's not like she's sort of you know starting to age. Like she's like she and Dan are like what in their like forties. Yeah, the movie's weird with the character. She's like twenty, like mid twenties. Yeah, I think like, again we mentioned the weird old age makeup. Oh man! I think they like they condense the timeline in the story because the book like spans like 40 50 years and that's very difficult when you have um you know have to make you know real actors play these parts over this period of time so some of it is very weird so you have um Malin Ackerman who has to play Laurie at 16 and then 35 and then and they don't um, age her at all yeah and then they mention that um Rorschach in this movie is 35 and that's a really hard 35 no offense to Jackie Earl Haley <laughs> yeah you know, no offense to him, he's fantastic, but you're just like, oh, no way is this guy 35. So it's very strange, the aging or de-aging of the actors in this film. Not to mention all the age makeup makes everyone look like they're Billy Crystal from The Princess Bride. <laughs> Except for Stephen McHattie as Hollis, the one actual age-appropriate actor. That He does so much with that like really small role. And so much of his stuff got cut out of the theatrical version, too. I haven't seen that version in a while, so it's hard for me to remember exactly, but I'm, I, he may have been cut out completely of the theatrical cut. I think he, he only... Yeah. Like, they have his introduction scene with Dan, 
mm-hmm. but they completely cut out his death scene in the theatrical version. Which, which was really, I thought, really good. That's a pretty that gorgeous was, sequence. Yeah, they, cut, they keep cutting back between like him fighting the the knot tops and like him punching out, you know, like super villains back in his prime. That that, that was cool. That was really well done. I think that one of the the sort of surprise good casting choices because I think there's a lot of different directions it could have taken with the character. Uh, Billy Crudup as as, uh, as Dr. Manhattan was, mm-hmm. I think, actually like, worked out really well. He's so soft-spoken, and it's not what I would initially have expected out of the character, because I kind of had Corey Burton's Brainiac voice from, the, from Superman the Animated Series in my head when I would read it, but this sort of detached MasterCard commercial voice, because um, he's the guy who does the MasterCard commercials, um, it, it kind of worked perfectly. The idea that he's not even engaged enough to be firm when he speaks. He's just kind Crudup of Crudup has there. like this weird quiet menace to him in the movies. Yeah, he feels, yeah, he, Crudup did a great job with just, yeah, like just, he really sold the not giving a shit about anything vibe. So yeah, when we do have those moments where he is actually involved, um, it, you know, it reads, it reads very well. I was just going to say, uh, Crudup gets the sort of unenviable task of having to deliver these long Dr. Manhattan monologues, you know, like specifically when he's on Mars. And I, I, I think it's a credit to his performance that he's like, they're, they're pretty compelling all the way through. Yeah, I think Billy Crudup is one of the few examples of subtlety showing up in this movie, which is amazing because he's the giant blue naked man. <laughs> It's like, for example, in the book, um, when Dr. Manhattan speaks, he has like these blue um, speech bubbles. And so it's kind of implied that he sounds very different from normal human beings. But in the movie, he does have this very normal, soft-spoken voice. And I think it's to the film's credit that they didn't try to give him some very strange vocal effect to distort what he was saying. So he does. So even when he's at his most detached, he sounds very soft and human in a way, which I think really works well. It's the opposite of what they did with uh, Electro in Spider-Man 2, where he's got, like, dubstep in his voice. Oh, dear. I have not seen that movie yet. That sounds terrible. Their version of Electro is very Dr. Manhattan-esque, not to get us too off-topic. The uh, I think maybe in terms of creating a, a, a real-feeling character that you evokes very complex feelings in the audience, I think that... Um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan as the comedian, that's a challenging role because this is a guy who is just the worst. He He's a fucking monster, but you're challenged to connect with him in a few places, and it's it's kind of eerie that it sort of works. I think it works, and I, I think it works and doesn't work. I think I think he gets some really great moments. Like, I, I you know, more, I think in the scenes where he's not, you know, I, you know, being an actual monster, like he is, you know, pretty funny. Um, and he sells, he, he sells a lot of the, um, I don't know, just being, you know, the scenes where he's like, you know, the, the really bad guy we've come to know from the, the, uh, the source material. But there's also like, I mean, there's that moment where Night Owl is like, what happened to us? And he's like, we're the American dream, man. Don't you get it? And it's just like, Oh boy. That's pretty heavy handed. Yeah, some comic book dialogue is just not meant to be spoken aloud by a real human being. This movie and Sin City absolutely have proved that to be true. <laughs> I think though the the moment where um where Morgan shines best as the comedian 
is this there's this really weird emotional turn in Dr. Manhattan's flashback to Vietnam. We see the comedian shoot a pregnant lady to death and then immediately turn the scene around to make Dr. Manhattan look like the asshole. Yeah, I I got to say I Can we talk about This is a this is a, a sentence everyone loves to say. Can we talk about the rape scene? Good god. Um cuz that's like Enjoy. such an important moment. That's such an important moment in the comic. And I There's like bits there's like some like how to put this? I I think it starts off really uh I don't want to say well. Uh, it starts off in a way that evokes the comic, you know, the, the sort of like quiet tension. And then like once they start fighting and it turns like into like Matrix fighting, like where well, everything's super fast and weird, like what's going on? All of the all of the fights have those sort of Power Rangers sound effects and the weird Matrix bullet time stuff that really it made it impossible for this scene to feel as terrifying and as brutal, I mean, it's pretty brutal, but I mean, it's, it's all of the violence in this movie has this sort of fine line that it's walking between cartoonish and brutal. And this, in this scene, it's like, you need to dump all the cartoon out of this. That needs to go away for this scene to have the proper effect. And and they didn't really make that happen. This movie is like such a great, um, sort of, uh, showcase for like everything that Zack Snyder can do well which is like really cool montages and like casting and you know I don't know I guess working with special effects and that kind of thing and sort of character moments but then also like really bad like really bad like video gamey like fight scenes and just like you know no subtlety whatsoever yeah like again it like what ruins that scene for me is then immediately I just hate that Hood of Justice cameo because, again, you have this really um, tense scene and then suddenly this guy in a purple mask with a really cartoonish German accent bursts in and you're like, what is happening? Like, this, <laughs> yeah. we, just, we just flew straight into crazy land. This woman's been attacked and what is going on now? It's just like, it, the tonal shift is like unintentional, but it's so strange and it's not the right atmosphere yeah, thing, whatever you want to call it. voice is like so hilarious to me so we have a lot of jumping through time um i thought that the that the film made it very clear where we were in time whenever it moved about um i guess because of the ever-changing costume and facial hair and style of the comedian throughout all of the funeral flashbacks mm-hmm I, I liked that whenever you were in the past, the movie's past, it was very everything felt of its time, even if the things in the in the present of the film in the eighties sometimes felt a little bit too modern, like with the uh with, with the lead character costumes. Whenever you were in the forties, man, you were in the forties. If you were in the sixties, you were in the sixties. You, you know what's interesting about this movie is that since it was made today, whereas like Watchmen was I mean, Watchmen is set in a alternate version of the 1980s, but it's also being written in the 1980s. But this was made, like, you know, today. So we get, you know, 99 red balloons. <laughs> and, you know, they're yes. like, there's, there's a lot of, like, Dewey Cox-esque, the 80s are a very important time uh, moments. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Uh, it makes um, me wonder. I like sorry, the, um, the uh, my favorite is the uh, in the Adrian Veidt scene, the elevator music playing "Everybody Wants to Rule the World" by Tears for Fears. Oh, that was awesome! That was awesome. That was like pitch perfect. I'm just like, I don't care how obvious this is. Muzak, Tears for Fears. I love this. Do you yeah. think anybody who saw this movie not having read the graphic novel didn't know that Ozymandias was sort of the bad guy from the first time you see him? Well, and also they don't like... Okay, so in the comic, like he gets some moments where you're, you're like buying that he's a superhero... Like he does, uh, he, he we see him like fighting bad guys and stuff. But in the movie, all he does is like stand around and like you know, kind of uh, pout and just talking, you know, vagaries about you know whatever. Yeah, I think that's also part of the book is that um, because Adrian is revealed the villain, we see very little about him revealed in the first half of the story. So as the story's moving on and we have these issues that are um, individual issues that are very in-depth about these characters, Dr. Manhattan and Rorschach, we know it's not them. So by the process of elimination as it goes on, then finally at the very end we get the huge Ozymandias info dump and it's like, oh, oh, of course he was the villain, you know, because we learn nothing about him other than yeah, he, doesn't he get a that guy. He doesn't get a flashback or anything which is like he has in the comics uh but yeah they, there's no there's no real screen time for him to do that I, I i think we can all agree though that uh whether we're talking about the movie watchman or the comic watchman the fact that ozymandias's computer password is uh, <laughs> ramsey's two is uh just amazingly stupid smartest man in the world don't you know put that book right there in front of your computer I like, like, he, I, I like, I guess the the I guess fan theory or whatever that he deliberately made it easy because like he, he wanted so Night Owl and Rorschach to find out and get out of Manhattan. I I would buy that I, also. I, I would buy the idea that he needs to be able to share this info. Like even though he's he's like talks about how you know I'm not a Republic serial villain. I'm not a comic book villain. I'm not going to explain to you my plan until I know what's happened. But he does still explain his plan after it's happened because he clearly, like all supervillains or it's subjective whether or not you consider him a supervillain, but he has to explain it to somebody so that someone will appreciate it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. He needs that audience of, you know, the two failed superheroes so he can have his big, oh, I solved the world's problems and you guys are playing cowboys and Indians moment. And he apparently has so little faith in them that he comes up with, like, the most obvious password in history. The, in the in the in the comics, it's even more ridiculous. Where the computer tells him that he's gotten all but the last two characters right, and says, "Do you want to add to the password? You're so close. You want to put just a little bit. Yeah, that's like the worst. It's like there. the worst security system in the world. You're so close. So if he had just typed the letter R, would it tell you <laughs> that you have the first letter right? <sighs> Ozymandias is a very complicated character, though. For how little you see him, I mean, the, the when, that, by the end of the movie, you really do find, at least I do, I start finding myself, you know, considering his point of view, and maybe he's right. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. Every time I, I read Watchmen, I come away from it, from it pretty differently, but I, I still always, like, my take on that is that, you know, Ozymandias is just a, a big piece of shit. Like, because if yeah. he's the smartest man in the world, why could he? Why did he have to do it this way? Why does he have to do it through, like uh, a giant, massive conspiracy that kills all these innocent people? 
No, I agree with Max. I'm very anti-Ozymandias, I guess. Um, you know, he's just like, he's such an awful person, even discounting the mass murder. You know, he's like, oh, I, I feel every death. It's like, no, you don't, you son of a bitch. You know, you just <laughs> killed all these people. You have no idea. You can't possibly comprehend what you've just done. You know, in your little Antarctic fortress, watching everybody suffer horribly on your screen, television screens. Ozymandias has all the feels. <sighs> in the comics, though, I kind of believe him when he says that he's really, like, that this is, like, a big emotional moment for him. And I think what it is is in the book which I understand that in comics you can be a little bit more broad than in film, and, you know, God knows this movie is broad enough, but Ozymandias, he throws his hands in the air, he's got tears in his eyes, and he scouts, he screams, I did it! He's invested decades of his life into this, and he's really trying to save the world, and he really feels like, I just saved the world, I did it, I am the greatest hero of all time. In this movie, Matthew Good never raises his voice above a decibel about what I'm speaking right now, yeah. even when he's just done the craziest most insane world-changing thing that any individual person has ever done he's still very 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 calm well in the movie also i mean they make him a nazi he's that's i mean that's sort of the downside of them going with that take which i think is a really cool take but also like you know in the comics he's just kind of a paunchy middle-aged superhero looking guy but in this yeah he's just this glowering like you know, skeletal fascists. I also think in the, in the, I can't recall if there was anything like this in the movie, but as a consequence, in the book, but as a consequence of the new ending of the film and the whole new plot device about the alternative energy and manipulating Dr. Manhattan's energy, it really seems as if the movie version of Adrian actually has a viable alternative to blowing things up around the world. Because when he talks about the idea of creating unlimited resources by, by capturing and harnessing Dr. Manhattan's energies and spreading unlimited energy throughout the world, thus eliminating want and need and the need for people to fight over resources, wouldn't that do it, though? Couldn't he have just done that? Which I guess I hadn't thought of until Kaylee mentioned that, you know, you could probably have thought of something else. But sounds like he had another option. Was there a scene? I you know I, I I literally can't remember. Is there a scene in the movie? Do they keep the scene from the book where Ozymandias is like, "Tell me it was all worth it," you know, to Doctor Manhattan, and Doctor Manhattan's just kind of like, "Eh, I don't know. It never ends." Later, because I feel like they cut that from the movie, but it's in the book. Uh, and it's, it's kind of an important scene. They sort of do it. They have it where he talks to Doctor Manhattan. Doctor Manhattan says he understands what he did. Yeah. Um, though the It Never Ends line is later given to Lori talking to Dan, which doesn't yes. quite work, but... Yeah, that's weird. Um, so, like, sort of, meh. It's, the <laughs> it's a, compro- not- a compromise that satisfies no one. Yeah, the end- new ending doesn't hold up particularly well. I, I gotta... I, I, I disagree in a couple of respects, um, and that's that I think... I actually think swapping out the squid monster for Dr. Manhattan as the bad guy is a way is like uh, actually fixes a problem with the end of the comic because making Dr. Manhattan the boogeyman as opposed to like aliens, which we don't even know if they exist in, in the world of comic. Like, I don't know. It makes more, it's a good way of tying into like this global fear of 
Dr. Manhattan that's like such a big part of the story. Yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly married to the squid plot device. I don't think that would have really worked in a live-action film. Um, but I guess my main problem with the ending, and I'm sorry if we're jumping way too far ahead to talk about the very end of the movie, is just that how bloodless it is. Yeah. Um, for, yeah. Because when you read the book, like the final issue, the first few pages are these silent, full-page spreads of New York just absolutely ruined and reduced to bodies and blood everywhere and it's absolutely horrifying and then we see Laurie standing in the midst of this and having you know this reaction to what she's seeing and it's extremely powerful and extremely heavy and also because you know there are these minor characters that we've kind of grown fond of and they've been killed as well and yet in the movie movie it's just a crater it's like totally you don't have that connection at all to this horrific event that's supposed to completely change the world as we know it it's just like oh well here's a crater guess we're not at war well and and not only that we don't get the characters like all these like minor characters like um you know the like the newsstand guy and the kid and uh rorschach psychiatrist and his wife and uh you know the, the the two lesbian women like we get you know like these glimpses into them and like you know more really kind of gets us to care about them and then like so when they die like it's really shocking and like really sad in the theatrical cut too i don't even think you get any time with the two bernies to get to know them before they die they're there they're there is like it it feels like a contractual requirement because like that's such a big part of the book so it's like hey they're here but you know, we don't really get anything off of them. There's another. Yeah, there's there's Sorry, more of them in the director's cut. Um, it still doesn't have the full impact of the book, but I mean, I do appreciate that Deck Snyder did try to have these very human, small characters that he knew the audience would have an attachment to, and did try to include them. Whether it's it's not entirely successful, but it's one of the smaller human touches that I'm glad he at least tried to include in this movie. Whereas other directors would have just been like, okay, fuck the two Bernies, who cares? Yeah, the news, newsstand owner Bernie was, I, that, 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 that was, that was, that was a good performance. My issue with the ending that they, uh, is, is, I guess, smaller, because like Max, I really, I like the Dr. Manhattan device, is it, I feel like it makes more logical sense, although now that I've heard you explain your feelings about it, Kaylee, I'm, I now really miss the, the, the bodies and the blood, sort of halfway out of buildings. It's one of the first images from the from the book I ever saw because um, I had that ruined for me. <laughs> but, and, and why didn't they do that when it's an R-rated movie and, like, you can do that? Like, everyone just disappears in, like, a giant flash of light, basically. Yeah, but my, my problem is actually the way that the, the movie casts a more... a much different judgment on... I guess it comes around with the way that all the characters react a little bit differently to Adrian's plot in the movie than they do in the uh, in the original comic book. In the in the comics, I know that you know obviously they're all they're all pissed at Adrian, and you know it, Rorschach does exactly the same thing that he does in in the movie, where he storms off and he's going to tell the world, and John has to stop him. But in the book. Adrian seems like much more like a human being, like he needs to be absolved by Dr. Manhattan, who I guess is sort of serving as his as his god here, who can has the power to forgive him, though he doesn't quite do it. 
Adrian feels like more of a human being. And the reaction that Dan and Lori have to this is basically the world's not coming to an end today. And I want to feel like it's not coming to the world. And then, you know, they kind of, I guess, just have sex on the floor wherever they are. But there's this whole arc for them about looking for a human connection, despite the fact that they're not normal people. And that felt like a really good culmination of that. The idea that at the end of the day, when after all this has happened, they just want to feel that connection to each other and to, to life and to living. That's not there in the movie. Instead, Dan gets really, really, really angry as a way to, I guess, to sort of be the audience proxy for the outraged audience about what Ozymandias has done. And so instead, he runs out and he screams no when he witnesses Rorschach's death, and then he goes back and punches the crap out of Ozymandias, and we don't get that sort of... It, it actually makes the movie feel like a much bigger downer of an ending than it already is, because that, hum, that, that sort of human comfort moment is gone. If it may please the court... I would like to argue. I would like to argue against that um, because one of the, one of the things I I think I, I, I I'm not going to say that that this movie uh, fixes you know Watchmen because that's you know it's dumb. But I I will say I thought Snyder having Night Owl have an actual visceral reaction to Rorschach dying felt like it was something that should have been in the actual comic. Because they spend so much time on Rorschach and Night Owl's friendship, like you know, there's that scene where he's like, "I'm sorry, Daniel," and he's like, "It's okay, man." And there's no real, like, like it feels like that's like part of a, a subplot that's supposed to be paid off, and like nothing ever happens with it. So like him, him being like the guy who like the the one person who's like really like distraught that Rorschach is murdered like this. Or you know, I don't know, murdered by cop. I guess is I, I don't know that. I thought that was really a, a nice moment. I agree. Um, I really like that change um, again because the movie does a really good job. I think Jackie Earl Haley and Patrick Wilson do have good chemistry as partners in this film, and so you do have that um, sort of I guess full circle connection at the end. Whereas in the book, you know, Rorschach just kind of wanders off, and as far as Dan knows he just wanders off in the snow and dies or whatever. And so I think because we do sort of get that human connection, maybe not in a positive way, but because he sees his best friend die right in front of him because of the events that Ozymandias has set in motion. And, you know, he had just, you know, restored this connection with his old partner and, you know, he has that visceral reaction for it. I mean, I think it feels more real to me because I never quite bought the sec last sex scene between Dan and Laurie. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't think we also needed another Dan and Laurie sex movie, scene in the movie. This movie did not I, need any more sex I don't need to see scenes. them have sex ever yeah. again. I, mean, I don't I just, need to see I them have sex ever. But. I mean, I think them just like having sex by the pool after millions of people have been murdered. I mean, I, I can get where the writing is coming from with that, but it's never been my favorite scene, so I was not sad to see it go. And just for me... You know, that final moment between Dan and Rorschach where they have that final disagreement on how to handle, um, you know, do they tell the truth or not? Do they reveal what Ozymandias has done? And then he witnesses his friend die because of this. I think that had a, that worked for me more than how their partnership ends in the book. Well, and Daniel, you know, Night Owl, Night Owl's reaction, like, to be being after that to then go, like, wail on Ozymandias, I, I think really works in terms of that's who that guy is, you know. 
he's this guy who, you know, he, he's a comic book nerd who became a superhero. You know, he's like, everything to him is fairly black and white. Um, so, so that, that being his like sort of like instinctive reaction to just like go like beat this guy up, even though it's not going to do anything, you know, I, I don't know that I thought that worked. I, I can I can see where you're both coming from. I can I can I can agree to disagree to an extent, and you've also swayed me on some other things. But I I feel in the end I'm I felt way worse at the end of the movie than I did at the end of the comic, and it's okay for that to be that way. I mean, it's not a feel good story, <laughs> but I would I would, yeah. I would I would I think we can all agree that Watchmen is not a feel good story. There are there are very few moments of levity in this film, <laughs> so I guess I you didn't like when the the owl ship ejaculated fire. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> let's talk about the sex scene. Um, I, no, wait, can we please talk about the sex scene? <laughs> in the in the book, it's two thirds of a page. You don't see much. It's over quick. You get the point, and it's a little bit silly. But it's also kind of adorable. Yeah, it's cute in the comic, but then, like, Snyder's version is, like, all of a sudden, like, the heavy bass of Hallelujah is, like, <laughs> and it's just, like, like it's, it's fucking, it's, like, fucking Red Shoe Diaries. I understand. It's that not the, even Red Shoe Diaries. It is pure 1970s yeah, it's like porno waffle, soundtrack. Waffle, waffle. And it's Leonard Cohen. And you're, like, oh, my God, what is happening? I understand that at the period of time where this film takes place, it's the only version of Hallelujah they could have used. There isn't a Buckley or Rufus Wainwright version yet that would maybe have been more subtle. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't want subtle. Yeah, but Leonard Cohen's a... version is actually my favorite version of the song. It's just like, I don't know who's Still, even now? Even now it's your favorite? I think it's interesting For that... For different like... reasons now. Now because I think back to this and just laugh my favorite version it's it's pretty funny that you know you're in for like a bad time when between this and and shrek when a a, when when hallelujah shows up in your movie it's like oh no no abort abort yeah it's Uh. it's like it's just one of the whether whatever version of it it's very overused on tv and movie soundtracks but i can definitely never see this hear the song the same way after this for good or for bad Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen and the Watchmen sex scene are just... Blank. And it's just so distinctly unsexy. Like, you know, Patrick Wilson can do sex scenes. Uh, little Children? Oh, you know, yeah. He's, oh, yeah, those are... That very fondly, those are, yes. those are great. Those are, you know, those are hot. But, like, that's it's just like... And, you know, Mount Ackerman's a beautiful woman, but it's just... Like, what's happening in this scene? It's just like, I don't know, maybe it's a nightmare. Maybe we're not giving you this enough credit. Maybe we should be saluting Zack Snyder for delivering a, an honest sex scene in a big tentpole movie that's not meant to arouse anyone. It's also a bummer that they lose that really great scene in the comic where it's, uh, they, 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 they place them trying to, like, half-heartedly have sex on the couch against Adrian Veidt doing, like, you know, the uh, parallel bars yeah. or whatever. Oh, that was hilarious. So many of the good visual moments from the movie are pulled right from the book, but I really enjoyed one thing from that scene that was unique to the film. They had just gone through the scene where they were playing with Night Owl's goggles and Dan was feeling, he put, you know, he, he's talking about how great they made him feel. And then up 
in the living room when they're trying and failing to have sex, you get to see them briefly reflected or, I guess, refracted through Dan's everyday guy glasses. Mm. And I guess that was a, a cool way for them to, to put through the visual metaphor of when he's looking at when he sees himself as Dan, he doesn't feel sexy enough to get an erection. But when he sees himself as as Night Owl, then he, he feels like a man and like he can... Patrick Wilson, Patrick Wilson really does a great job of selling, uh, not to jump ahead or, I don't, you know, at this point, jump around, like, it's fine. like Watchmen, we're just jumping around at this point. Um, we should probably, we should probably embrace that. But, um, Patrick Wilson does a really good job of selling, uh, Daniel as this just super fucking dork. Like, oh, you know, that, that's, that scene where, uh, Silk Spectre comes in. And it's 99 Red Balloons, and it yes. like cuts to his face, and it's like, bum, 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 and he's just got this like total yes. like goofball expression. It's just like so perfect. It's really good. He really sells it, and I, I mean, it's. I think like Patrick Wilson is really underrated as an actor. I think because usually he's very conventionally attractive, and so people just say, "Oh, he's just a pretty boy." Actor. He's got a lot of range. Like he was, he plays really good bad guys. He plays really good nerds. Yeah, I think he was, like, a really good fit as Dan. And, you know, obviously because in normal real life he is super hot, you know, you wouldn't think, oh, the middle-aged doughy bird nerd in horrible sweaters. But he really does feel like Dan Dryberg in this film and is really good and does the nudity thing, which I appreciate. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they went there. So There weren't <laughs> enough instances of Dr. Manhattan's penis on screen, though, right? I feel like we only got one shot. There were a number uh, of shots of, of, I think, pretty much um, uh, pretty much any instance where you saw full frontal Dr. Manhattan in the book, you saw him in the film. I was impressed by that because Hollywood is so generally petrified of male nudity. I was kind of happy they, were, had, they, had, the, they had the proverbial balls to show the literal balls. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's one aspect I like that Zack Snyder did fight for some things. Like, yeah, he's Doctor Manhattan's super naked, and we're not going to put the speedo on him for every scene. So I'm like, okay, that's cool. I mean, like so much of the movie from the book, you think, oh, that'll be the first thing to go. Like so much of it, when you hypothetically thought of a Watchmen movie, you were like, okay, there won't be nudity, there won't be male nudity, you know, there won't be the Bernies, etc. And you know, Zack Snyder. For as much as sometimes he missed, the, he sees the forest for the trees. You know, he was like, "Okay, yeah, this guy's naked. It's just happening. Deal with it." It's so interesting how like this is uh, this was really like the most faithful Watchmen movie we will ever get, and it it like it does suffer from that. But also, I mean, have you ever have you guys ever read the like '90s script oh, for Watchmen? Yes. That where is like it it beautiful. ends with. With like Rorschach and Night Owl and Silk Spectre, like dimension hopping to like our universe in present day. <laughs> yeah, the script has the greatest line in a not actually Watchmen comic or film where someone yells, "Oh my God, it's the goddamn Watchmen!" <laughs> <laughs> but like, and not to get too off topic, although I, I I could talk about that script for like an hour because it's amazing. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's like, this movie is just such a, like a fucking, you know, road the hell is paved with good intentions because like, I, I like the movie overall, but 
it's it like large parts of why it doesn't work are because it's like Snyder loves Watchmen. I would there was a period of time where this was going to be an HBO miniseries, and I think that could have been the maybe the only way to do it better. I agree. If you had six I, hours to do it, I actually disagree. Um, because like um to get back to like the ultimate cut with the Black Freighter, I think like a really extremely long version of Watchmen is just extremely hard to get through. Mm. And again, if you were to literally adapt it into 12 episodes, I think you'd run into the same problem with making everything extremely literal and trying to put every single panel on screen. And I just don't think it can work in live action. It might have been interesting, but uh, it's just like it's hard enough getting through the three and a half hour version with the little cartoon characters. I don't think a 12 hour version would have been successful. Have either of you seen, and I know this is the least popular medium among comics fans, but um, concurrent with the release of the film and eventually released in as in in as a whole product with the ultimate cut, there is a like six and a half hour motion comic adaptation. I've seen parts of it, and it's very unintentionally <laughs> funny. Well, yeah, it's got, all one guy, right? The one it's guy like... doing all the voices. They were, they were, they hadn't quite like motion comics. The Marvel Knights ones hadn't happened yet. Like the Batgirl Year One hadn't happened yet, and I so they were still sort of comics where Spider Man tells me not to smoke weed. <laughs> but they were still looking at it like it was an audiobook with pictures, and so it's this, this one. This is my Laurie voice, and this is my John voice, and. <sighs> <laughs> Just like the best part of that for me is the scene in the very end where, you know, Bates smiles after Dan asks if he can catch the bullet, that shit eating grin. And in the motion comic, the version of him slowly making that horrible <laughs> smile is so fucking hilarious. Just like, it just looks so horrible. You're just like, oh my god. It's completely ruins the moment. The thing I love about motion comics is that they are made for no one. Like they are like <laughs> They, like this, like the people who like the the companies that make them don't give a shit. Like they're just using their you know whatever IP they have around. Like oh, this old Black Panther comic or this Joss Whedon X Men comic, and then the like nobody buys these things, right? Like uh, I can't imagine um, anyone watched the six hour motion comic of Watchmen. No one. I know it came with. I know <laughs> watched all of it. Oh my god! Yeah, Dylan. People don't have your patience. Yeah, I, 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 paid I, I know it came you're, with. You're the person. Yeah, I technically paid for it twice because I was an iTunes subscriber to it as it was released a a, a month at a time. The year Watchmen <laughs> came out, and then I bought the Ultimate Cut. It was included as a double DVD with that set. So I've sort of spent like forty dollars on that. I did watch it all the way through once. Oh my god! I know. Can't imagine. I'm an easy mark. It's like your own personal psychic squid exploding. <laughs> okay, so it looks like we're pro- about ready to start wrapping up this episode of Supers on Screen. I want to get everybody's closing thoughts, see if they can summarize their feelings about Watchmen. Kaylee, take it away. Okay, I can say I actually really love this movie, warts and all. Um, I love the director's cut version. I think Jackie Earl Haley as, as Rorschach is one of the greatest performances in a comic book movie. Um, I actually really love the set design and costuming in this film, which we didn't really get to talk about, but I just... Really enjoy this movie. I could talk about it for consider for like three more hours, and that's why you guys are about to cut me off right this second. Um, but yeah, I enjoy Watchmen. Um, I really enjoyed watching it again to talk about it with you guys. So um, 
Good job, Watchmen. It's a goddamn Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> Max, how do you feel? Um, well, I am tired of this earth and these people, and I'm tired of being caught in the tangle of their lives. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, I, I like, I like this movie. I, I, you know, I think it's, it's an, it's sort of an ambitious failure, I, I guess. Like, it's, I feel like this is the movie that sort of showed people that, like, you don't want, like, you know, accuracy to the book is not necessarily the like number one thing you should be looking for uh, in your in your comic book movie adaptation. Um, so it's it's a it's a beautiful failure in that respect, but it's it's watchable, but it's also not so watchable because it's literally um, three and a half hours long. <laughs> My final word on Watchmen is that I feel differently about it every time that I watch it and every time someone talks to me about it. I find that this is a movie that I cannot create a firm idea in my head about how I feel about it, as demonstrated by the fact that each of you have managed to convince me to your way of thinking from my firmly notated on my computer way of thinking about this. And that all of my major points that I wanted to touch on today, I have ultimately felt wrong about by the time I was done talking about them. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Dry your eyes, Dylan, and let's go home. We, we really could talk about this for probably another hour and a half, but we won't. <laughs> um, thank you both. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Kaylee. Thank you, Max, for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, thank you fun. for having us. It never ends, Dylan. <laughs> nothing ends. Never, nothing this movie ends. never ends. <laughs> this podcast never ends. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Supers on Screen. We'll be back next week to talk about uh, the first Hellboy movie. It should be a grand old time. Uh, and until then... I leave it entirely in your hands. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night. Supers on Screen is produced by Dylan Roth for Deadshirt.net. Visit Deadshirt.net for reviews and commentary on comics, movies, TV, music, and more. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Deadshirt.net. That's D-E-A-D-S-H-I-R-T-D-O-T-N-E-T. You can find me, Dylan Roth, on Twitter at D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Our theme music is Become the Night by Big Damn Heroes. Deadshirt.net. Consider everything.